The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 7, 28 through 8, 1. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, That worship set was pretty amazing, wasn't it? Now, you you should have clapped right there, but um, that's all right. You are the crowd that chose to come to the second service today. And I know why you chose that. You have a lot of wisdom. I get it, all right? But the, uh, this is why, why you should have clapped. Amazing instruments, amazing uh, musicians up here. Today, of all days, is the day you should be clapping because today's the day where their normal 5 a.m. time of getting up and getting here it felt like 4 a.m. Musicians are like late night people. They're not early morning people, all right? And so to deliver on a day like today, can we give them a prayer? Can we, come on. Yes, it was good. So we do thank you though for everybody that came set up early this morning. It is, it's one of the worst days of the year, especially if you've got kids. It's just awful. It's just awful. So we, I'm glad you made it. And um, my name is Justin, if you are new here, and I'm one of the pastors. And the past few weeks, Ben has been announcing that our church membership class, it began last week, it continues today, and it moves on uh, next week. If you couldn't make it last week, it is not too late. You can still watch the video from last week and get caught up. But some of you might be asking, what is the point of church membership? What's the point? Do you get a special key fob? Do you get secret access into the, you know, come and worship during the week or something if you want to? Or you get a card and you get, you know, special access in heaven? Well, yeah, you do, but... Beside, no, you don't, I'm not, 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 not for those reasons. The reason we have church membership here at Sacred City is quite simply because the Bible talks about church membership. That's it. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we are members of the body of Christ, one to another. And out of that, there's some implications. First, church membership is meant to be covenantal, right? Just like marriage. Marriage between a a husband and wife comes before God. They make oaths. They make commitments to one another. That's witnessed by God. That's witnessed by witnesses. That's um, put on by a pastor. All of that's going on. Why? Because we're making a legal declaration. We're making a covenant with one another that no matter what's going to come into our life, we're going to love each other. We're going to serve each other. We're going to be there for one another. Now, the same thing is true about church membership. We We are not meant to treat the church the way we treat Walmart. You are not just a consumer of religious goods and services, and I am not just a provider of religious goods and services. It's really common today to treat the church as a place you go just to get a little spiritual something-something, right? I'm just going there, hopefully get fed, hopefully feel better, hopefully maybe learn some things, and then I'm out. No, the church is meant to be a place that you have a covenant relationship that's going to require a lot out of you. It's a deep, every meaningful relationship in your life is gonna require a lot out of you. The same is true of being a member of a church. Also, church membership is familial, 
What does that mean? When you become a member of Sacred City, you are joining our church family. The elders here are responsible to know, feed, protect, and lead this church family. We are accountable to God for the way that we care for the members of this church. So when you join this church, you come into our family and you're now under our care. We want every member of our church to have direct access to a pastor when they need it. When you get sick, when you've got death in the family, when you've got premarital counseling, you're ready to get married, and you need a pastor there. When you've already been married and you need counseling then, we want you to have access to that as well, right? And lastly, church membership is about discipleship. Jesus said, the greatest, so when people are looking at the church and, and they're going to be looking in and saying, hey, I don't know, is Jesus really real? He said, the number one apologetic, the number one thing that will convince outsiders that Jesus is real is our love for one another. Now, the question is, when you read this, the question should be is, who are the one another's? Who's he talking about here? The answer, as you read scripture, is church members. In fact, it's actually impossible to obey the New Testament without being a ch church member. Let me show you what I mean. The New Testament uses the word in the Greek, but it's words in English, one another a hundred times in the New Testament, okay? And 47 of those instances are telling Christians how to treat their fellow church members. They're written to a specific church saying, do this for one another. I want to read a few of these. I printed a few of them off. It says, be at peace with one another. You know who that's hard to do with? People that you're in relationship with. You know who it's not hard? Christians like somewhere on the globe. Me and them African Christians, we are at peace with one another. I love them. I love them. You know why? They're not in my missional community. They're not in my face. They don't see my sin. I don't see theirs. I don't have a problem with them. It's really hard to live at peace with real people you're in real relationship with. So who are we commanded to be at peace with? The church members right in front of our faces. He also says to accept one another, to don't grumble among one another, to be of the same mind with one another, to confess our sins to one another, to seek good for one another, to don't complain against one another. Love one another. Through love, serve one another. I like this one. Tolerate one another in love. Just tolerate them. <laughs> My last nerve, but I'm tolerating you in love, right? Now, these are all commands to Christians and how to live with other church members. Be hospitable to one another. Teach and admonish one another with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, let's just state what's really obvious. Who is God commanding us to be hospitable to? Church members. Who are we commanded to tolerate and love? Members. Who are being commanded to serve? Members. These words of Jesus and the words of the New Testament are not nebulous commands that place some kind of impossible demands on us to like love people everywhere. No, no. Specifically talking about members of the church and how we're supposed to treat one another. 
They are expectations of church membership. This is why Ben has often repeated when he's talked about membership class that if you are a baptized believer and yet not a member, your next step in discipleship is church membership. We think church membership is an important piece in discipleship, in following Jesus. All Christians should be a member of a church if they're serious about being a disciple of Jesus. So if that's you, the elders and I invite you out to our church membership class this afternoon, three to five in Moline, at our church in Moline, and I hope to see you there. Now, that's, that's it for my long announcement. Let me pray for us and let's get after it this morning. Father, as Joel already acknowledged your presence, we just want to thank you for it. Thank you that your spirit is here. Thank you that you accompany your word preached. I pray that you would help me preach your word rightly. Um, that I am not capable in myself. And so I need your Holy Spirit to accompany me. I need you to really think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. Would you communicate the message that you want your people to hear, that would they hear your voice um, and not mine? Um, we thank you for the work that you've already done in our church, and we ask that you would show up and just turn the spiritual lights on for us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, Today we come to the end of our study on the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. If you remember, we began our study about eight months ago with Jesus going up the mountain and beginning to preach. And that was in chapter five. And now today we see Jesus kind of drop the mic. He finishes his sermon. He finished his sermon last week. He drops the mic today and he comes down off the mountain, finishing the sermon on the mount. Now, the question that we should ask of our text and actually over this whole series, the question we should, we should ask now is, so what was the result of the greatest sermon ever preached? What was the result? Well, the answer to that question is both encouraging and humbling. Matthew tells us in our text, and when Jesus finished these sayings, finished his sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, let's talk about the good news first. Jesus preaches this sermon and the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Astonished means amazed. It means overwhelmed. It means blown away. It means he preached and they went, whoa. Now, there were at least two things about Jesus' sermon that blew people away. One, the content of the sermon. And two, the power of of the preacher. We're going to look at both of those in turn, but first, let's look at the content of the of the sermon. If you remember back, Jesus started his sermon off in a weird way. He started off with these things called beatitudes. And the beatitudes displayed the let's just say the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. He said, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." 
when every other group at this time on the face of the planet said the poor represent people who are cursed by the gods. And if you were rich, you were blessed by the gods. And there was no compassion for the poor that there was Obviously, you've done something wrong. There's something wrong with you. And so there was this dismissal, by and large, of the poor, and everybody wanted to be rich and famous. Jesus starts his sermon off by saying, nope, you got it backwards. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, not the strong, the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not for those who think they're already filled or already full. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus started his sermon off by showing his kingdom values are upside down from the values of the world. Those that we think are on the outside are actually the ones he welcomes in. Those who we think are the inside are actually the ones on the outside. Jesus' kingdom is upside down from the kingdom of this world. Well, then Jesus starts teaching and talking about this high moral virtue standards of human flourishing. He starts talking about, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, then you're not even gonna be in my kingdom. Remember, he takes, he says, it's not enough just to not commit adultery. If you lust in your heart, then you've already committed adultery. It's not just not to kill your brother. If you hate your brother or you call him a fool in your heart, then it's just like murder. Jesus is saying, don't just avoid these big S sins because it's the root that, it's the root that will lead to the fruit. So he kind of elevates his standard of righteousness where it's supposed to be. To perfection. This is what he expects of people in his kingdom. It's blowing people away. And Jesus' sermon, of course, was not some cold lecture, nor was it a soft spiritual walk in the clouds, just talking about spiritual things. Jesus' sermon was full of the gritty realism that accounts for the great difficulties that come to those who seek to live a godly life in the midst of a broken and evil world. A world full of injustice, a world full of evil and wickedness and darkness. Think about this. Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. What topics did he cover? We've already said it, lust, anger, divorce, lying, retaliation against your enemies, poverty. He's, he talked about the religious hypocrites that make living in this world even worse, that pile rules on top of us. He talked about anxiety about the future. He talked about judging others. Jesus has one shot at this Sermon on the Mount and he just lines up everything that divides us and just hits them all in one sermon. He does the exact opposite of what most preachers do. Most preachers say, what do people want to hear about? That's what I'm gonna preach on to get a crowd. Jesus gets up and go, what do people need to hear about to live in this dark world as agents of light, as the salt of the earth? And so he just, he's not afraid of anything. And Jesus does all of this in the working people's language. 
He uses images and metaphors and parables that were full of things people understood. He spoke like a carpenter, not like a scholar from Jerusalem. Jesus was brilliant. He was a brilliant philosopher, but true brilliance makes the complex seem simple. And that's what Jesus did. Take eternal concepts, super, or super complex things, makes them simple, cuts to the heart. So Jesus, when he preached and he taught this sermon, he blew people away with the content of his sermon. And for that matter, he is still blowing people away who will actually read his words and study them and listen to them and then try to apply them to the real world. But there was something else that astonished the people. There was something about the way that Jesus was teaching that was different from anything else they'd seen before. Matthew tells us here, for he was teaching as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So it wasn't just the content of Jesus's sermon that was astonishing people. It was also the power he possessed as a preacher. Jesus preached differently. Jesus didn't get up there in him and hall and, well, maybe, you know, I don't know. Lots of people think he didn't do that. He got up. and declared the truth. When Matthew says Jesus taught as one who had authority, the Greek word translated authority there is exousia, and it's also translated as power, or as the right to rule. My Greek to English dictionary defines it as ruling authority, or authority over a domain or a sphere of influence, often pertaining to the political or religious sphere, okay? Now, there's a lot of different spheres in society. There's the sphere, of the sphere of the family, right? And as I, my voice carries a lot of weight in my family, I speak as an authority on my family and to my family as the head of my house, right? If you're a CEO or, or you, know, you own a business, you have a sense of authority over your business. If you're a politician, you have a sense of authority over your constituents, on and on and on it goes, Jesus, when Matthew says Jesus spoke as one of, of, of an authority though, he's not talking about an authority over one of these spheres. He's talking about an authority over the whole sphere of everything that's in existence. As we've heard before in Colossians, that Jesus himself in the control room of the universe, he created it all, he sustains it all, and he speaks as an author. He speaks as an author who's writing a story. He has authority in that. Jesus, when he preached, he possessed this type of authority and made people go, whoa. So Matthew's telling us, Jesus didn't teach like most teachers. He taught as an author, as an authority. Well, just how did he do that? Well, I thinking back over the Sermon on the Mount, I found at least five ways that Jesus spoke with authority, spoke differently, all right? Now, when I'm up here preaching, one of the things that I will often do is I will appeal to an authority that's higher than me. I'll, I'll appeal to a scholar who has got more degrees than Fahrenheit and he's a lot smarter than I am, right? So I'll appeal to him and say, listen, this is what that scholar says or he knows the biblical languages better than I do, so I'm gonna appeal to that authority. 
The Old Testament prophets, if you remember, this is how they spoke all the time. The Old Testament prophets would come and they would say something like this. Thus saith the Lord, right? What are they doing? They're doing what, we, what I do often. And I say, hey, don't shoot me. I'm just the messenger. I'm the mailman. I'm not up here in my own authority. I'm speaking the words of Christ. The word of God has the authority. I don't have that authority. When a prophet came, he's saying, thus saith the Lord. This isn't my message. God's telling me to say this, right? Now, here's what's interesting. When we, sur when we survey the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus never once says, thus saith the Lord. Instead, he says six times, truly, truly, I say to you. What is he doing? Jesus did not appeal to an outside authority to prove his point. Why? Because there's no one above him in authority in the universe. This is why when God shows up to Moses, he says, well, who, or Moses is like, well, who should I tell him is coming? I am says that I am. I am says that I am. God is just like, I is, don't worry about it. That's why the Bible starts with, in the beginning, God. But, but, nope, that's how we start. In the beginning, God. Jesus appeals, he preaches, and he says, this is what I say to you because I am the authority on life, on existence, on creation, on everything. I'm the one standing at the right hand of the Father. There is no authority above me. So he doesn't appeal to any other authority. Secondly, he says he didn't come like the scribes. What were the scribes? The scribes were experts in the Old Testament. The scribes were trying to get people to take seriously the Old Testament, to read it, to study it, and to align their life with it, right? Jesus didn't come teaching the Old Testament. He came fulfilling the Old Testament. He said, all the law and the prophets point to me. He didn't, he wasn't bringing people back to the Old Testament, go back to the Torah, go back to the law. He said, that was all pointing to me. I am here as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Third, we saw this two weeks ago. Jesus preached in this sermon that he was the great judge that would determine who got in and who stayed out? The kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught that every single human being would stand before him one day and would be judged based on their life, their acceptance or rejection of him. Jesus said, some of you all say, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, for, let's, if that isn't true, if that isn't true that Jesus is going to actually do that, then it is the most arrogant claim anyone could make about themselves. Oh, by the way, you will all stand before me. When you die, then comes the judgment and I'm the judge. I'll tell you if you get in or not. I'll tell you if you lived rightly or not. I'll tell you if you had a good life or not. I'll tell you what's gonna happen to you. This is why C.S. Lewis said, anybody that goes, oh yeah, I'm Jesus, I just, he's such a good teacher. Jesus and the Dalai Lama and all the moralistic teachers, put him up there, put him up there. He's one of the greats. 
And C.S. Lewis is like, you don't get to do that. With the stuff that Jesus said, Lewis said, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Choose one, right? Just think about it. It obviously would take, Jesus taught as one with real authority. And then he says, I'm the judge of everybody and you're gonna stand before me one day. And people don't go, you're cray cray, bro, I'm out of here. Why? There was something authoritative about him. He said that kind of thing and people were like, now I know his daddy and his mommy. I know he grew up in that. I know something about his presence, something about this power. He, I, he, he might really be God. Just, let's just say that obviously it takes a certain amount of gravitas or power or authority to make a claim like that and have people actually believe it and they go, oh, that is, I'm astonished. I'm astonished by that. That blows me away. Fourth, again, we saw it in chapter seven, verse 21. Jesus claimed to be the son of God. 721 says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus here is making a direct claim to be the Son of God. I don't know how many professors I had in college that told me Jesus never thought he was the Son of God. Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. And I'd be like, here's a verse. Did you see this? My Father in heaven. Yes, he did. He knew who he was. He knew who his father was. This claim was what got him crucified in his life because the Jews believed it was blasphemous to claim that God was your father. And of course it is, unless it's true, which it was. So he claims he was son of God. That's, he has some kind of authority there. And then lastly, Jesus didn't just teach. He did good works. He didn't just teach about the kingdom of God and pull out his whiteboard and say, here's what I want little boys and girls to do. He didn't teach just about virtue or spiritual truths to get to heaven when you die. He actually performed miracles. He actually got in arguments with people. He cast out demons. He made broken people whole. He didn't just teach about things. He established the kingdom of God. He wasn't just teaching, he was showing. He was like, this is what the future kingdom's gonna look like. Everything broken will be made whole. Everything dark will be made light. All the demons and all the oppression will be driven out of the kingdom. He was demonstrating what the new heavens and the new earth is gonna look like. And everywhere he walked and went, he did that kind of stuff. He brought the culture of the kingdom into the culture of this world and the world was changed by it. I want you to see this. Open up your Bibles with Matthew chapter four, verse 23 and 20. We're gonna go to 23 to 25. This is right before Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it says. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And look, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread through all Syria 
And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus begins by preaching, teaching, and demonstrating the kingdom, bringing wholeness and healing and restoration. Now, then he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, right? He preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And now look what he does in chapter eight, as soon as he's done preaching. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. See, Jesus was doing more than just preaching, teaching. He was demonstrating. He was creating a culture. He was showing what's going to happen to the world when he comes back again. So from all of this, we see two things here. Both the content of Jesus' sermon and the power of the preacher was what astonished the crowds. When Jesus is rightly preached today, and his people live in community and on mission as members of the kingdom of God. They live in a little kingdom community and the world looks in at that. The world is still astonished. Now, as I said earlier, this should both encourage us and humble us. First, it's, it's an encouragement because Jesus is unique among all the religious leaders of the world. And Christianity is the only religion that has the gospel of grace at its very heart. That the author of creation stepped into his creation. The author wrote himself into his story, history, and stepped inside and did everything he expected humanity to do. Why? Because humanity has failed. God wrote us in, God created us, and we rebelled, and we pushed away, and we sinned. And what's the just punishment of our sin? Execution, destruction, death. But what does the author do? The author writes himself in and becomes a character in the story. Jesus Christ enters into human history and lives the life that we have failed to live, perfectly obeying the Old Testament. Never sinned once. And what does Jesus then do? This is the most spectacular piece of the gospel. He said, I didn't come just to show up and show out and show you how to do this thing right. I came to take your place. The punishment that you deserve, I'm gonna put on me. I'm gonna pick up your sin and pick up your weakness and pick up your brokenness and I'm gonna take it to the cross and I'm going to be crucified there. And what I'm going to do there is I'm going to earn for you forgiveness. I'm going to earn for you acceptance into the family of God. I'm going to earn for you a righteousness that's not your own. I'm going to earn for you a future and a coming kingdom where there will be no evil, there will be no brokenness, there will be no tears. Jesus says, I'm going to do all of that for you. That's the message of Christianity. 
And when people hear that good news and place their faith in the living Savior, Jesus Christ, they submit the entirety of their life to his lordship and they live in obedience to him. We are no Christians. We are no longer our own. We have been bought with a price by the precious blood of Christ. And therefore, we no longer live for our own wills. We live for Jesus. This is what makes the church a radically countercultural place where we serve one another the way Christ served us. We serve one another out of our devotion to Jesus Christ. The world, Jesus says, should look in and see this and be astonished. However, that should, that, that's the part that should encourage us. But we should also be humbled. The crowds were astonished. Astonishment is not a commitment of faith. What this is teaching us is people might recognize the uniqueness of Jesus. They might hear the gospel and say, hmm, interesting. They might notice the uniqueness of the church and see our love for one another and yet never place their faith in Jesus Christ or join our church. As a preacher, this is encouraging to me and it's humbling. <laughs> Jesus preaches the greatest sermon ever uttered over the lips of man. And yet, what is the response from the crowd? Huh, that's different. Wow. Hmm. We should go watch him next week too. Wow. Did you see that? Did you hear that? Oh, that was neat. They were astonished. Amazed, blown away. And yet members of this crowd would shortly betray, arrest, torture, condemn, and crucify Jesus. Now when I, the son of God, the word made flesh, the creator enters into his creation, the author steps in and he preaches a sermon. I expect the heavens to open. I expect at least an altar call. I expect somebody bowing down before him. I expect, open up the heavens. Let us see the spiritual world. Let us see demons. Let us see angels. Let us see what's really going on. Shoot some lightning out of your fingertips. Do something, Jesus. What does he do? He preaches a confronting sermon, challenging everyone. And he walks down off the mountain and gets back to work. And the crowd is astonished. Astonished. Hmm. Hmm. 
few chapters later. Matthew 26, 47 says, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12. And with him a great crowd. There's that crowd again. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. The author enters into his story, opens up a window into heaven, lets people see the only way to God is through me. And yet the crowds turn on him. They've watched him heal. They've watched him deliver. They've recognized the authority. They've been astonished by it. But something in their heart is repulsed. I don't like the way he talks. Who does he think he is? Talking about God as his father. And now they come and arrest him. Then in the next chapter, Matthew 26, it says, or Matthew 27, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. So now there's a crowd at the foot of Pilate and he can give up any criminal he wants to give up. And we've got Jesus right here, the one who claims to be the son of God, who's taught and performed miracles and done all this stuff. He claims to be the king of the Jews. And then we've got this Barabbas right here, a known murderer and insurrectionist. And what does the crowd do to the author of life? They say, we want Barabbas, we want Barabbas. Crucify him, crucify him. What does the crowd want? They want a man who will fight for them, not a man who will die for them. Here we see Jesus is not a teacher just interested in trying to wow you with his brilliance. Nor is he simply a doer of great deeds trying to entertain you or prove something to you. Nor is he some kind of spiritual self-care coach meant to elevate your life to the next level. Jesus is God in the flesh. He came into this world to do what no one else could do to save us from our sins and establish the eternal kingdom of God that's going to make everything sad come untrue. He stepped into creation to fix everything. And what did we do? What did humanity do? We killed him. That's how you know he's God. We did our worst, and it shows his best. Oh, Jesus, all you can do is kill me. Guess what? Three days later, up from the grave, he arose. 
You know what that means? Jesus deserves your white, hot, wholehearted worship. He doesn't care about your astonishment. Wow, what a great teacher. Mm, wow, really made an impact. Mm. He's not after your astonishment. He's after your worship. He doesn't want you to look at his life and go, wow, what an inspiring human. Mm. Too bad he was born way long. If he had an Instagram account, he'd really help a lot of people. No. Jesus wants you to believe he was who he said he was. He did what he promised he would do. And he wants you to worship him. That means nothing less than centering your entire life on him. Betting your entire eternal existence upon him. Don't be like the people in the crowd, astonished, but unchanged. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. There has never been one like you and there will never be another. I thank you for your perfect life. I thank you for your substitutionary death. I thank you for your resurrection. I thank you for your exaltation to the right hand of the Father, that you sit in all authority. I thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to apply that salvific work that you did on the cross, to apply it to the people that you've called, the people that you've called by name. I thank you for how you guard and protect the church. We thank you for your work. And we want to build our life on you. More than just be astonished, more than just be blown away, more than just be intrigued. We want to worship you. I thank you for the Lord's Supper. On the night that you were to be betrayed, and Judas came in there with your apostles, and you took the bread, and you broke it, and you said, this is my body broken for you. And you took the cup of the, of the wine, and you said, this is my blood that we poured out. It's the cup of the new covenant. You told us to eat it as often as we come together to celebrate your death and to look forward to our future where we eat with you again in your kingdom, the marriage supper of the Lamb. <clears throat> so we eat this meal this morning confessing our sins, but also professing the reality that the Son of God came and lived the life that we can't live and died the death that we deserve. And so we get his righteousness and we get welcomed into the family of God only because of the work of Jesus. So as we come to this meal today, Lord, we open our hands humbly to receive from you the only thing that saves our soul and that is your broken and bleeding body that was shed on our behalf. So I thank you for drawing men and women to yourself and I thank you for saving us. Would you bless this time together? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.